0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: I'm
2: having a little trouble getting the balloons down. One in stock and the other is only partially opening.
0: I think of balloons, or I guess the lack of them.
2: Thank you very much.
0: There they were, on the rafters of the basketball stadium, suspended in baskets, two of them, full of balloons. And they were supposed to fall and make a big show, blue and white, the real television moment surrounding the president at this time Jimmy Carter and the vice president this time Walter Mondale in those cascading dots you just kind of can cash those balloons in for some points in the presidential election polls convention bounce but it doesn't happen in 1980 because the bag holding the balloons is supposed to rip when the crew yanks it but it does not
2: Having a little trouble getting the balloons down. You you can can see balloon, that large, large boxcar box thing at the top of
0: your screen? The TV camera pans upward to the balloons. Ted Koppel says they ought to fire the person who's in charge of those balloons. Still, Carter does what he's supposed to do, grinning, pointing out members of the crowd. There's a cheer in the hall led by his home delegation of Georgia right up front and Arkansas with this kid, 30 years old, who's the governor there, cheering. Vice President Mondale joins the president on the podium. On with the show. Balloons or not, Carter is perspiring. Not because of the balloons not dropping. It's because of the hot lights and the hot speech he just gave.
2: The new leaders of the Republican Party, in order to close the gap between their rhetoric and their
0: He, a president, really laying into his opponent.
2: To launch an all-out nuclear arms race.
0: He's in the same stadium, Madison Square Garden, same city, New York City where 4 years ago as an unknown, he was anointed. Now, he's known that the American presidency is full of struggle.
2: Daytime.
3: All of us must learn to waste less energy. He was, you know, basically this living walking symbol. He was the peanut guy, he was the grin, you know, he was the flannel shirt. And once it came to governing and he had to decide which side of many of these various conflicts that he was going to come down on, he got in trouble over and over again.
0: That's Rick Perlstein. He's the author of some great books, The Invisible Bridge, which we've talked about during our Reagan series. And now, today, the day this podcast launches, he will be coming out with Land. So it's out there, and uh, he joined us to discuss the 1980 Democratic Convention, a convention that didn't go so well as the one we discussed in the last episode
3: you know mistakes happened but they say that every network made a commentary that the balloons were a um, were a metaphor for the for the carter campaign
0: finally a few a trickle of balloons falls down from one of the bags doesn't hit the podium just the maryland delegation and they are very joyous, probably thinking there's balloons everywhere in the arena. And
2: the other is only partially opening, so what we're getting is a kind of waterfall of balloons.
0: Free the balloons, some smart Alec delegate started shouting. Another, a New York delegate, shouts, If they can't free the balloons, how will they free the hostages? And there's this feeling. It's not the feeling you got in 1976 in the same hall four years ago.
3: The police were clashing with protesters outside. There are protesters from the Communist Workers Party. And these were the people who had been uh, massacred by Klansmen in in, in uh, North Carolina earlier in the year. Uh, so basically, this is kind of like 1968 small scale street battle. And Henry Kurtzberg, who I interviewed, said he was like kind of making like last minute revisions and like a typical Carter speech. It was just a bunch of kind of stapled together, you know, kind of engineer like points. And he said it was like doing – um. Doing uh, emergency room trauma surgery after a gas main explosion. He's like finishing the speech as all this kind of street battles going on, and they're they're showing one of those kind of biographical films. Unlike the brilliant one in 1976, this one's a real clunker. The voiceover says, "No president has been entirely beloved in his own time." Uh, Putting them down is one of the favorite pastimes in American politics. And then so the the hall is is 5,600 people over capacity. So police close the doors because to assure a capacity crowd convention managers had let in thousands of people without credentials things are chaos and that's when he you know takes the podium and there's you know no standing ovation there's no welcoming chance and of course everything that people remember about this speech are is the stuff that goes wrong you probably know the teleprompter went out. I did not know. So it, that goes out during. I, I had no idea. Yeah. So he begins his speech, and he, he looks kind of nervous and scared.
2: And the budget would still be in the red.
3: He does, it, yeah. Yeah, and that and that's because he, he has to wing it for a while. Maybe the teleprompter, you know, gets fixed. Hendrik Hertzberg told me that they sent him to fix the teleprompter as if, as if he had any idea to you know fix a teleprompter. And then by the time he says we're going to beat the Republicans in November a bunch of firecrackers go off.
2: And we're going to beat the Republicans in November.
3: It turns out that, that, that a Communist Workers' Party member had snuck inside the hall to try and uh, release a banner. So he's totally rattled. His eyes are kind of darting about. And he, that's when he starts calling the role of Democratic heroes, you know, and the you know Roosevelt, the Truman. Lyndon Baines Johnson. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Kennedy, and that's when he says, uh, the guy who would have been one of the greatest presidents that's in history, right. Hubert Horatio yes. Hornblower. He tries to kind of double down and tries to kind of like cover up his mistakes by kind of slashing his fist in the air. He says even louder, Humphrey, you know, kind of triumphantly.
0: <laughs> it's not the coming out party of a newcomer. There's a lot of hurt feelings in this building. Reagan and Bush, Jimmy Carter's opponents in this election, got balloons in Detroit the previous week. The balloon drop is just a small part of a convention that didn't go very well.
4: If you ever wanted to look at, you know, two examples of how to run, how to have a convention and how to not have a convention, that would probably be the easiest one to do because you've got the same nominee in the same
0: city both times that's john poland the texas delegate who we talked to who was there at the 1976 convention and there was
4: nothing resembling the cohesion and the enthusiasm that we had in 76 there was nothing resembling that in 1990
0: for carter the worst was yet to come i guess you could ask why they come back to new york right? Maybe it was to capture a little bit of that magic in 76. And I think there was some of that, but it actually happens for a much drier reason. The president does want his home state and his home state's largest city of Atlanta to host the convention. The other contenders are Detroit and Philadelphia. And it comes down to politics and it comes down to hotels. The Democratic Party will not do Atlanta because They say that any state that hasn't ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, a big issue at this time, hasn't ratified the ERA, Georgia has not, cannot host the Democratic Convention. So it's Philly and Detroit and New York, and it comes down to hotels. Philly and Detroit simply don't have enough. Even this gets messed up a bit, and there's some hurt feelings within the Democratic Party. Ed Koch, the mayor of New York, jokes that Detroit was going to send our delegates to Canada. The mayor, Coleman Young, takes it well, but in Philadelphia, feelings were hurt. We was robbed, a Philadelphia official says. (music) New York Governor Hugh Carey Cheering Carter on in 1976. Stayed neutral this year. At least the mayor was a supporter. And New York rolled out the red carpet once again. New York Magazine printed maps of the convention layouts and where all the delegations would be, where Carter would be, that his rival Ted Kennedy would be at the Waldorf Astoria. The magazine suggested delegates try the high tea at France's tavern, Broad and Pearl, where Washington turned in his sword. A $5.85 prefix brings you six tea sandwiches plus tea and pastry. Or you could frame your day of birth in the New York Times newspaper, courtesy of the Microfilming Corporation of America. A donkey cast iron bottle opener or a stuffed Big Apple doll. Made great souvenirs for the delegates. of crooked cabbies. Be sure they turn on the meter and not charge a flat fee. Also, they must give correct change. They can't take their tip through the change. Watch out for price hikes on out-of-towners especially at Fifth Avenue near one store the magazine found was selling a $25 Texas Instrument calculator for $69 a violation of Consumers Affairs Regulation number 32. Go to Sylvia's Delegates were advised at 328 Lenox Avenue For soul food, try the salmon croquettes and the ribs. Or go to the Carnegie Deli for big pile-high sandwiches. Tell Herbie we sent you. If you like books and want to read more than platform committee reports, The Strand at 828 Broadway had more than 2 million titles. Still up at midnight? Check out Night Court, downtown, for a parade of prostitutes, pimps, drunks, and petty hoodlums. That could be sad, but also entertaining. As in 76, credentials to the convention were guarded jealously. All badges were treated with a chemical to reduce counterfeiting. Security was tight. X-ray machines at all entrances, 300 undercovers roaming the crowd, SWAT teams on the high roofs, canines sweeping the subways, and the stadium air ducts. It was extra contentious inside.
2: Just 12 hours after the final gavel, and much of the Garden's convention facade is already gone. Like the illusion of unity they tried to present here, the facade was just paper thin. But that's really no surprise. From the beginning, it was quite obvious the Kennedy and Carter types who came here really came from two different worlds. Four years ago,
0: it was about unity, with a few touches of fringe disagreement, grumbling, Wallace supporters and things like that. In 1980, with Carter down in the polls, polls showing Reagan would have a lead over him at different times during this year, high inflation, hostages held, no seeming prospects of their Release.
2: The special report that we planned to bring you tonight was about domestic politics, the battle among the Democrats. But we think the crisis in Iran is more urgent right now than the campaign here at home. Some 60 Americans, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It's Friday morning there now. But throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostage's freedom.
0: The combination of unemployment and inflation, we don't quite know what it's like, I think, in modern times to experience this kind of inflation. Once in a while, gas prices go up. But what if all prices go up simultaneously, you know, 10 um, percent?
2: During my campaign, I promised to cut the government share of our total national spending from 23%, which it was then, to 21% in fiscal year 1981. We now plan to meet that goal one year earlier.
3: And so I was kind of looking at some of my campaign materials. One of them is a Carter Mondale flyer. And on one side, it has his slogan, There's no reason why our government can't be as good as its people. Right. Which was very much this idea that uh, Carter was this plain man who came from plains and farmed peanuts and worked for a living and all this stuff. And on the other side, uh, it has one of his key economic messages, quote, there are more humane and economically sound solutions to inflation than the Republican program of forced recessions and unemployment. So he basically promised that he was not going to wring out inflation by slowing down the economy and causing recession. But that's exactly what he did by uh, nominating this inflation hawk, Paul Volcker, who is received by kind of the mainstream establishment editorial page as this godsend who is finally going to um, make America live within its means. And I have all kinds of stuff about that in the book. I talk about how ironic it is that that was Jimmy Carter's message and his policy all along, but he never really got credit for it. Uh, But Paul Volcker was embraced almost as this uh, secular saint. Um, And uh, I, you know, I find him a kind of malign and quite dishonest figure um, because he did intentionally steer uh, the economy into a recession as Carter knew he would. and, And Carter basically signed off on that. He could have criticized him. You know, he could have publicly announced that this is what Volcker is doing and I have no control because the Fed is independent, but he didn't. And he seemed perfectly willing to sacrifice some of his reelection chances because he really kind of believed in this message. He was this hard shell Baptist, the guy who, you know, whose lesson that he took from World War Two was that sacrifice had won the war. <laughs>
2: Good evening. For millions of Americans, this may be the worst weekend they've ever faced for finding gasoline to give them the automobile freedom they take as their due. Gasoline shortages are spreading across the country. I've been here since 4.30 this morning. It's ridiculous waiting online here. I couldn't get gas uh, Tuesday. The block was about, uh, the line was about eight blocks long. It was ridiculous. It was unbelievable waiting on
4: People are very desperate. They depend an awful lot upon their cars, and uh, it seems to be no limit to how far they'll go to keep driving that car. I thought my husband would be able to get gas. He came here at 20 after 5, and uh, he called me at 6, that I should come out and take over because he's got to go to work.
0: Gas lines. Shortages. Prices of everything going up 10% and just
2: not always being available. I know that the Congress will continue to cooperate in the effort to meet our needs in responsible, non-inflationary ways. I will use the administrative and the budgetary powers of my office, including the veto if necessary, to keep our nation firmly on the path of fiscal restraint. Talk to Rick Perlstein about this.
0: He has a little bit different take on inflation
3: it's It's kind of an interesting thing because I'm not even sure I've fully wrapped my mind around it um ten percent inflation, right I mean uh, higher for some commodities, obviously higher for food, for example, for things like coffee and beef and obviously gas prices, but ten percent annually it doesn't seem to us like the hugest deal in the world. What I think was more important was what inflation seemed to symbolize for the American public. Which was that, you know, inflation is what happens when people's desires outpace their ability to pay for them, right? So this idea that somehow it would spiral out of control, I think, really kind of fit the national mood that that that, that, that um, people uh, had become more selfish and uh, that people's ability to kind of uh, save for the future had gone away and you know while this is happening all this inflation is happening consumer credit is exploding too so people are perfectly willing to spend money and put it on their credit card so it's not like people are feeling any particular privation banks are willing to people to give people credit cards the the rules uh, uh about how easy it is to get credit are in fact being continually relaxed during these years I'm a bit of a left wing critic of inflation fear itself. I point out that uh if if you're a homeowner and you buy your home with um dollars that are dear and you pay it back with dollars that are cheap, actually inflation advantages you right uh advantages people who are in union contracts that have cost of living increases advantages people who have cost of living increases because they uh are on public assistance.
4: Today, I speak to all citizens of America, but I wanted to speak to you from home here in Boston, in this hall where John Hancock and Sam Adams first stirred the American Revolution.
0: Carter directly, and he recalls this in his memoir, gets a warning from a very loyal senator to him. Delaware Senator Joe Biden tells him that Ted Kennedy's in the cloakroom talking about a run. We talked to Rick Perlstein about the beginnings of Ted Kennedy's failed 1980
3: campaign. Yes, I, I, I definitely uh, engage in some psychological speculation when it comes to Ted Kennedy. And, uh, yeah, he's this this is his duty as the the last brother. You know, he asks his mother, right, if he has permission to run for president. He's he's he gets a lot of ribbing for that. But sort of the idea is he's doing it, you know, on his family's behalf.
0: But it's important to note that at first, eh, say, in the summer of 79, it looks like Ted Kennedy's to win. For
4: many months, we have been sinking into crisis. Yet we hear no clear summons from the center of power.
0: National magazines are saying he could just simply walk away with this. Here's what uh, Jules Whitcover and Jack German say in their book, Blue Smoke and Mirrors. In mid-August, the president dispatched Tim Kraft, and then his campaign manager, to notify Senator Kennedy, through his old political friend and associate, Gerhard Doherty of Boston, that Carter intended to stay in the race to the bitter end. It was a clear warning that Kennedy could not count on a bloodless coup of the sort that deposed John Lyndon Johnson at 68. Paul Kirk remembers Labor Day 1979 at a cookout in his summer home in Hyannisport that uh, Senator Kennedy takes Kirk aside and tells him he's going to run. If the thing doesn't work out, Kirk remembered Kennedy saying, I think I'll just be able to live with myself better for having Taken up the cause that's drifting away. No more was said, Kirk said, and then the next thing he knows, he's reading newspapers that say Joan Kennedy, who um, she and Ted had separated, but uh, would come together for the 1980 campaign, and Rose Kennedy, his mother, had told newspapers that they were all right with Teddy running. I thought it was a rather strange way to launch a trial balloon, he said. To hear Ted Kennedy talk about it, the decision to run really came out of seeing Carter's Malay speech. And this was a, not what Carter called. It. In fact, it's really one of those historical names defined by opponents. But it was a crisis of confidence speech where Jimmy Carter says he's going to make this energy speech. And then it doesn't happen. And Everyone now, you know. This is a time when, and you still kind of have the president commanding the media, but this is a time when they really did. If the president said he was making a speech, all the networks would have it on. So he says he's making a speech and then doesn't. And then goes up to Camp David and talks to numerous people, including among many numerous cabinet officials, that young kid governor from Arkansas, Bill Clinton, who tells them like a lot of people don't see you anymore. How is the person that ran the 76 campaign the same as the guy who's president? And then eventually Carter does make a speech.
2: It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives. Now, one thing, and I talked about this with Rick Perlstein, that,
0: that people don't remember uh, much is that the speech was actually well-received. Uh, Tip O'Neill, for instance, it was actually a terrific. It was an amazing speech. speech. It's a great speech. It was everything he did afterwards. He yes. fired people and seemed to blame people and stuff like that.
3: Now that's one take. I don't know. I think that that's, that's supported by the evidence in the polls. He went way up in the polls after that. It's probably the most successful presidential speech delivered in the Oval Office since uh, the Silent Majority speech of Richard Nixon in 1969. The confidence that we have always had as a people. It's not simply
2: some romantic dream or a proverb in a dusty book that we read just on the 4th of July. It is the idea which founded our nation and has guided our development as a people, confidence in the future.
0: It's what happens afterwards when he fires members of his cabinet. It looks like he's blaming his cabinet for his problems. It looks like he doesn't have answers that there's a problem. This is the moment that Ted Kennedy says that he decides to run.
3: The reason that that leaped out at Ted Kennedy as something offensive, and I take him at his word, was that kind of the message of the Kennedy family, you know, President Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, and himself was this kind of Reaganite message of hope, and that murders was a council of despair. And I think he took great offense at that. But Ted Kennedy's campaign
0: does get into trouble pretty quickly.
3: Campaign is just incredibly hubristic. They make no preparations. There's a scene I have in the book where, you know, um, they can't even install the telephones right and everything's going wrong. And he brings on all these, you know, kind of ringers from Kennedy campaigns past. And one of them is asked by a reporter, one of these old Kennedy hands from the 60s, you know, don't you think things have kind of changed since your day? And he's like, I don't think anything's changed. You know, it's all the same. It becomes very evident that a guy who is ahead two to one in the polls uh has no idea what he 's getting into, and that lead shrinks very very quickly
4: well i'm uh, were I to to make the uh, the announcement
0: of course there's the disastrous interview with Roger Mudd, which is remembered because kennedy can 't explain why he wants to run for president
3: in the famous uh, Roger Mudd CBS special in which he. There are basically three components to the special, four components. One is an interview he does, kind of in these Adirondack chairs with Ted Kennedy, in which he kind of looks him in the eye and asks him these very difficult and embarrassing questions about, you know, his marriage. You know, his wife is is an alcoholic. They're rarely seen together, and then uh they segue into Chappaquiddick and it's really quite a striking thing. I think this probably had a bigger impact, I think, than, than the interview, the subsequent interview, it, which was in Ted Kennedy's Senate office, in which he asked him why he wanted to be president. The, the, the Chappaquiddick thing was a reenactment. <laughs> it was quite astonishing. They, 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 they strapped the camera into the backseat of a Cadillac like the one he was, or an Oldsmobile, like the one he was driving last night. It was kind of like the killer's eye view from a slasher movie. And, uh, you know, it really went through the evidence in a very devastating and damning way. The Chappaquiddick thing has some very powerful symbolic resonances when it comes to this family duty he has to redeem the family name and, you know, keep it, you know, atop the, the, the flagpole of American politics. Um He has an older brother, Joseph Kennedy, Sr., who. Uh, of course is shot down over the ocean and drowns to death as a war hero he has a younger brother who um, rescues um, his crew member and drags him you know uh, through the ocean to an island and then there's the third kennedy who um, has a chance to rescue someone at sea and she ends up dead right I mean, it's almost this precise inversion of the heroic story of PT-109. It's uh, almost too poetic to be true, but it is true. Uh, So the the penultimate segment is Kennedy at work, right? Kennedy in the Senate, uh, Kennedy in his office juggling 10 tasks at once and showing absolute command and looking like someone who could be a president. And, you know, Kennedy giving this absolutely soul-stirring speech to a labor convention. But then the last segment is Roger Mudd interviewing him in his Senate office and asking him why he wants to be president.
4: Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm... Uh, were I to to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run, the reasons that I would run is because I... Have a great belief in this country that it is, there's more natural resources than any nation of the world.
3: And, you know, the kind of the rap among the Kennedy team was well, the reason he wasn't able to come up with, um, you know, a convincing answer was because he was still in his exploratory stage and he couldn't say he was running for president without, you know, falling afoul of campaign finance laws, yada, yada, yada. But when you listen to him try to answer the question, uh, it's very clear how conflicted he was. He almost can't get a sentence out. And you look at some of the other footage from around that time, every time the subject came up, he couldn't come up with a, a full, complete sentence. And when you look at the transcript of what he said or watch it, it's really striking that his argument for why he wants to run for president, even though it's completely coherent, it's like this kind of um, very ineffectual, very halting, very incoherent, uh, paraphrase of what John F. Kennedy says in his famous nineteen sixty presidential debate against Richard Nixon.
0: Okay, round two, name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer Solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for chumba Casino. Ch- ch- that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free
3: for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Right. So almost he's trying to, you know, uh, inhabit the ghost of John F. Kennedy, who, of course, voters would think of every time they hear his voice, right? Because he sounds quite similar uh and he 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 can't do it right he can't kind of summon uh that command because he just seems so psychologically conflicted uh he really does seem like he wonders at the deepest level of his soul maybe because of chipperquick maybe because of other reasons that he's not up to this task uh and it's really uh, comes across on television in quite damning a way
0: one of the things that surprisingly helps Carter, in addition to the disastrous interview, is the taking of hostages in 1979. And I guess we could also say the fact that Iowa was a little bit closer. And Iowa, this is the state that made Jimmy Carter. He beats Kennedy there two to one in the Iowa caucuses. And then it's like, well, Ted Kennedy can do better in New England. No, Carter wins New Hampshire as well. Carter ends up winning double the number of states as Kennedy. But Kennedy does win some big ones, New York, California. So he's not interested in getting out of the race.
3: They were so, so nasty to each other. You know, as as this decision to run uh, is kind of basically becoming a big story in 1978, will he, won't he... Ted Kennedy is pushing Jimmy Carter to fulfill his campaign promise to introduce a national health care legislation uh, bill. And finally, Carter does it. And it's basically what would be considered now in the context of Obamacare a pretty left wing proposal, a uh, very expensive proposal, but it does have this kind of two tier system of care. And Ted Kennedy immediately rushes to the press conference's microphones. And uh, says that Jimmy Carter wants to have a uh, separate but equal health care system, which is, of course, this very nasty dig at this guy whose calling card is that he's a, you know, a, a, a post-racist Southern politician, that he's a, uh, you know, he's a, a civil rights liberal. And he's basically associating him with Plessy versus Ferguson uh, and separate but equal accommodations allowing segregation. So it's just like a real dig of the knife. And, you know, on the other side, you know, Jimmy Carter gives as good as he can get.
0: This is what uh, Whitcover and Germain say. As the convention in New York approached, there was another more immediate concern for many of these Democratic officeholders. The real possibility that they would be challenged by serious and well-financed Republican opponents while their ticket was led by a politically crippled president. Continued Democratic control of the Senate seemed assured. But for many incumbents, it was going to be a difficult year. All of these things encouraged Kennedy to remain in the contest, even though the delegate realities had been inevitable for weeks. The arithmetic began to hurt Kennedy even before those final primaries, Paul Kirk, Kennedy 8 said, making it far more difficult to enlist any of the uncommitted or convert the Carterites. We didn't think we were on a kamikaze mission. By the time the primaries were over, people would reflect on what happened. They would look back and say, there really hasn't been a dialogue. The hostages aren't back and the economy didn't get better. We thought an argument could be made that politics were more important than the delegate selection.
3: We run into this kind of almost demented insistence that he's going to push this thing all the way through to the convention, even though it's mathematically impossible that he wins. And the way they decide they're going to do it uh, because they've basically lost – According to the rules in place, is that they're going to try to change the rules at the convention? It's uh, a really ugly, nasty business, and after that point, it's 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 all out political war. And
0: how do they do it? They decide to attack an obscure rule known as F three C. Kennedy forces called it the robot rule.
3: A couple things happens in the run up to the convention. One is that they realize. That they could uh, force a vote on the floor to revoke something called Rule F3C, uh, which bound delegates to vote for the candidate they'd actually been selected to represent in those primary or caucuses, and they called that an open convention. Uh, that meant that Carter was running a closed convention. They could you know kind of uh frame Jimmy Carter as his political boss using the power of the White House to threaten and intimidate people into you know uh not voting for their conscience or the person they thought would be the best president. The Carter people were able to come back and say, "Look, millions of people voted for Jimmy carter's in primaries, and you want to cancel their votes." So already you have this very nasty showdown. The other thing is that uh, the Kennedy delegates on, uh, on on Ted Kennedy's behalf introduced this raft of um, floor fights on, um, on planks for the for the platform that literally say that the policies that Jimmy Carter has pursued in the last four years sometimes you know, directly, you know, kind of advocated in speeches are not democratic.
0: One of the supporters of getting rid of this rule and effectively opening up delegates to be able to vote for whoever they wanted was Hugh Carey, the governor of New York state, the host state of the convention. He had remained neutral in this race, but he's not neutral in the fight over F3C. Each side was really well organized. On one hand, There was no reason for a contest. Carter comes in, having won 24 states to Kennedy's 10. He had 300 more delegates than he needed for a first ballot majority. On the other hand, Kennedy's not quitting. And there's enough delegates to at least give him a platform at this convention. Delegates, even Carter delegates, were more liberal than Carter on many issues. On top of that, Carter saddled with another scandal. This one involving his own brother. It had been found that, uh, his brother, Billy Carter, who during the 1976 proceedings in New York was just a kind of affable figure that New York's found, New Yorkers found funny. Well, he's not going to this convention. Uh, he had to register as a foreign agent. He received over $200,000 from the Libyan government. And the questions around that become okay, that's his brother. It's not Carter. But did he know about it? Did he cover it up? Did he, was he influenced by his brother? All these questions are swirling around as Democrats are deciding who to put at the top of their ticket. Delegates should be free to speak their mind. This is the argument that Kerry and others make. Anything could happen, said Mario Cuomo, at this time the lieutenant governor of New York and a Carter supporter. But he knew how serious it was. It was the craziest convention I've ever seen. Maine delegates start talking about Edmund Muskie running him. He's the current Secretary of State, and Muskie, even though he works for Carter right now, isn't exactly saying no to it. President Carter's team, with campaign chair Bob Strauss at the helm, leads the attack against freeing these delegates. It would be a betrayal, Strauss says, to every Democratic voter who made their choice clear in the primaries and picked President Carter. It would allow elites to pick a nominee. Pins with robots crossed out that said no, FC3, were distributed through the hall. You are not cattle, Governor Carey said. Hamilton Jordan had warned Carter of the danger early in 1980, losing the nomination. It was even greater than losing the general election. They felt that Reagan was so far to the right on issues that they could beat him in a general election. They could beat him, but they'd have to get the nomination. And so the organization was there. Command trailers with phone lines to each delegate. It would blink red if the president's command trailer was calling. Either Strauss or Hamilton would probably be on the phone. To avoid any funny business with phone lines, they were encased in copper. So on the first night of the convention, rather than getting involved with unity, (laughs) rather than unities and blessings and speeches about how great carter is there's an open fight over this rule Uh, for two hours speakers for and against spoke ketting's team pulls off a coup because they get a carter delegate someone who's pledged to him from north carolina who's for the open convention hugh carey governor of new york speaks for the open convention this is not about jimmy carter or ted kennedy it's about choice Don Fowler, the governor of South Carolina, speaking for Carter's side, retorts, yes, it is about Kennedy and Carter. The only reason we're having this vote is because one side is losing. Carter's team felt good. They had 100 delegates in reserve, and no one was seemingly moving, but they wanted to avoid any kind of stampede, that there might be one delegate who switches, and then everyone follows. There was a Carter whip for every 10 delegates. Even a rumor of a delegate switching would cause the trailer to dispatch a gerbil, a Carter team messenger in a green vest and green and white hats. They looked like they were dressed like tablecloths, one magazine put it. They would go to that person. When an Illinois delegate was was wavering, A. Tom Donnellan ran from the campaign booth. He came back seconds later. He's been bought off. Hamilton Jordan turns to Donnellan and says, Okay, that's good, Tom, but what did you give me? I have to tell me a federal judgeship? Now, VIP passes at the convention. Kennedy's team gets George McGovern, the 1972 Democratic nominee, to support Kennedy's position. One delegate spoke of uh, cabinet officials walking on the floor, politicking with Democrats. The argument was that people's mind changed since the primaries, but it wasn't persuasive.
3: Um, I have a transcript from the Internet Archive of all the ABC News broadcasts, you know, from that summer and fall. And there was story after story after story and lots of vote counting. And, of course, the Kennedy people claimed they had all these votes and they claimed that they were getting close. But ABC was doing these, you know, kind of whip counts, basically. And no, it was – It was never close. And yet they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, all the way to a recorded vote on the floor of the floor of the convention.
0: Donald Bruce Johnson, an Iowa delegate, remembered getting lots of phone calls in July about this open convention idea from Kennedy supporters, even before the convention. He got them from Henry Scoop Jackson supporters, even Lyndon LaRouche people. I was elected by Carter people, though, and I have every intention of honoring my pledge. Milton Reck of Chicago, another delegate in the hotly contested Illinois delegation, remembers getting pressure from Mayor Jane Byrne of Chicago. Her employees, Chicago Sanitation and Sewer Commission people, were haggling with delegates. They looked like the squad of heavies in the Blues Brothers movie, he said. Few minds were changed. Even when Ted Kennedy comes to the Illinois delegation in meeting to convince delegates, he went flat. Kennedy talked about his relationship with Mayor Daley, who was dead at this time. Most of the 1980 delegates had never known him. They were newcomers. The machine, even the machine guys in Chicago who might know him, they're kind of mixed about Kennedy because he hadn't supported them when McGovern had kicked them out in 1972. A Lenor G. Ritt, an Arizona political science professor who, who was at the convention, remembered a little bit of megalomania stealing over him, though could 300 people topple a president? But in the end, my position never wavered. I was elected a Carter delegate. It would be palpably unfair to change after the primaries. It was obvious to Kennedy delegate Martin Spires of Wisconsin. There was limited movement. Maybe in July we had a chance, but at the convention, delegation pressures made influencing Carter delegates unlikely. Carter wins this battle. 1,900 to 1,300 votes thereabouts. Ted Kennedy decides that this challenge is, in effect, his presidential nomination campaign, and he decides to concede.
3: Yeah, I mean, and and, and so, like, he says he's not going to be a candidate, and if you watch that video, people are booing him. They can't believe it. They feel so betrayed. President Carter's forces have won an impressive victory this
4: evening, and I'm a realist, and I know what this result means. I have called President Carter and congratulated him. The efforts on the nomination is over. My name will not be placed in nomination, but the efforts, but the efforts for democratic principles must and will continue. I continue to care.
3: I continue um, you know, the Kennedy charisma, this idea that the, the, this is the this is the guy who's going to save us and lead us out of the wilderness is such a powerful idea. Yeah, no one. had. I mean, no Kennedy had lost. That was it. Um, Only only Bobby Kennedy in the Oregon primary in 1968.
0: Barbara Mikulski, who later became a senator from Maryland, was set to introduce Kennedy. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. It represents the last challenge of any kind at American Party Convention. Forty years ago, and that was the last parties have learned their lesson to control these things, perhaps. And yet for President Carter, this doesn't represent the end. On Tuesday, the convention opens and battles... Despite the question of who will be the nominee for president seeming to be settled, disagreements come. You know, you've got over a 1,000 Kennedy delegates. Carter had accepted some Kennedy planks to spend more on solar energy and to not to override, or not to have agencies like the Department of Energy override regulations put in place by the EPA. But one thing stood, a call for a $12 billion jobs program. The president can't accept it, Jody Powell, his press secretary, said. We just can't do it. In addition to this, Ronald Dellums, 44-year-old African-American congressman from California, says, okay, Kennedy's not running. I will jump in. I will put my name in for nomination. Carter should have debated Kennedy. There should have been more transparency on the issues, but there's not. In addition to this, a group tries to get a woman candidate to run. The head of the New York City Council And also a Hispanic candidate to run, perhaps the lieutenant governor of New Mexico, maybe to run, pull votes away. African-American delegates for Carter don't budge for Dellums. They appreciate his run, but they stick with Carter for the most part. The New York City Council president who was solicited, Carol Bellamy, says, no, I'm not going to run. It's just another attempt for an open convention. Debate also continues on the MX system, the MX missiles. Missile Experimental, as it was called, was a missile system of nuclear force capable of constantly moving around in the western United States so that the Soviets could not take it out. It was pulled by a giant tractor. It cost $33 billion and employed 24,000 people and required 10,000 miles of roads to be built. Delegates were angered by it. MX Disaster on Wheels, said Signs ban the X-rated missile. There were some Carter delegates who were very much against MX, but President Carter would not bend, And he refused to negotiate a national security issue at a party convention. People are saying, hey, well, can you just delay it? Can you cut the spending? No.
3: A platform plank to um, cancel the MX missile uh, worries Jimmy Carter so much that He's filing delegates into their um, trailer in the parking lot and forcing them to sit down with his generals, telling them that the Soviets are going to overwhelm us.
0: Oregon chairman Joe Smith, who led the fight, also
3: supported Carter both for his nomination and on the rules fight the day before. You know, Carter has all these generals um, arguing for it. But then Kennedy humili- humiliates Carter again by getting this guy named – Paul Warnke was appointed and confirmed as Carter's arms control negotiation right before the inauguration, even though the neocons basically gave everything they could to sabotage um, sabotage his uh, nomination. And Carter stuck by him, and he was the guy who negotiated SALT 2. But he decides he's going to argue for Kennedy's pat- platform plank. Uh, um, saying that the MX missile is completely insane and unnecessary. Uh, so that's like you know one more humiliation before the end. Uh, he says that um the MX missile would divert billions and billions of dollars uh from necessary priorities to support the delusion that we can have a limited nuclear war in which the good guys win. And this, while this is going on, all the delegates are being herded into the Carter trailer, uh, and basically um. <laughs> they're getting their arms twisted by generals.
0: It's a bitter day, and there doesn't seem to be much compromise. At, at uh, one point, you know, an angered Kennedy aide, Harold Ickes, figures out that there's some mistakes that the Carter delegates and leadership made, and they can keep stalling the convention, and they do. Tom Donnellan and another Carter aide go down there. Donilon's going to work for Biden and 88 later, in his short campaign later, goes down there, confronts Ickes, what are you doing? It's like, we're shutting this convention down. And there's an actual grappling going on. Um, Eventually, Ted Kennedy gets wind of this, of what Ickes is doing, and says, Harold, I think it's time to open up the convention.
3: Ted Kennedy is introducing a plank for a jobs guarantee, and that should be the number one goal of... The Democrats, when Jimmy Carter has made it quite explicit that the number one goal of the Democrats should be containing inflation, one of the planks that went to a floor fight was a, a Kennedy minority report to fight inflation. So it's literally, you know, they, they were literally taking things that Carter had done, looked the American people in the eye and said, we have to do this in order to save the economy. And Kennedy's saying, no, 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 we're going to do it my way. And so there's this all, all kinds of um, very tense meetings going to the convention of how many of these uh, fights are going to be allowed to go to the floor. Literally, they they print tickets for a fifth day of the convention because if all these go to the floor, it's going to be like hours and hours and hours, and it's going to be like 1972 all over again. And finally, they come to an agreement that there's going to be this many floor fights and no more. Uh, the rest will be voice votes that are kind of determined in advance. But Jimmy Carter has to decide which parts of his legacy he is going to uh, fight for on live national TV. From the outset, the veteran Bob Strauss had worried about what he called the rhythm of the
0: convention. I felt, he said later, we let the conventions take over from us too much. They were making all the news. and We were making none. We were chasing Kennedy. At one point, Strauss even suggested that Carter might break the pattern simply by gimmickry, like leaving his hotel to cross the street to the stage delicatessen, a New York landmark, for some locks and bagels. What the president needed was anything that would turn the attention of the news media away from Kennedy and counter the impression of Carter as a passive figure being manipulated by the man he had defeated in
2: all the primaries. Even the Carter people agree the great moment here came Tuesday night when Senator Kennedy stood at this podium and gave what everyone is calling the best speech of campaign 80.
0: And then uh, so, of course, he gets his speech on the next day. That's the Tuesday. And that is if there's any I've never seen convention footage where the first thing that comes up in Google is not the presidential candidates acceptance speech. It is the um, maybe Clint Eastwood in the chair. But the, the the this one is this this convention seems defined by kennedy's speech on tuesday night
4: for me a few hours ago
0: this campaign
4: came to an end for all those whose cares have been our concern the work goes on the cause endures the hope
3: still lives and the dream shall never die right and one of the remarkable things about that speech it wasn't like Here's a speech uh, in which we're going to get, you know, prominent figures in the party to get their primetime uh, movement in the sun. This was literally one of those floor debates. Right.
4: Things worked out a little different from the way I thought. But let me tell you, I still love New York. <laughs>
3: He was speaking for a plank that was the that was the plank for 13, 12 billion dollars in job creating spending and committing the party to renouncing any government policy that would increase unemployment. So you remember I read that flyer. Carter promised he was not going to increase unemployment at the expense of inflation. So basically, this was a plank meant to cancel uh, Jimmy Carter's entire anti-inflation program, which was
1: want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Based on the fundamental of his economic policy, and he was also this plank also called for wage and price controls. You know, Carter considered that lunacy, and a pollster discovered that 80% of the delegates wanted this platform to pass. So that's how divided the Democratic Party was and how far the Democratic Party had gone from breaking away from their incumbent president. Um, so Jimmy Carter decided that he, he, he had, he had to, he had, he couldn't let, uh, a voice vote on this one where 80% of the people would basically be canceling his economic program. He said, this is where I'm going to make my stand. I'm going to force Kennedy to have a recorded vote, vote on this one. And that's when Kennedy decided this was going to be the one where I'm going to literally make a speech arguing for one platform plank. And the first guy to speak was Julian Bond, which was incredibly humiliating because he was the Georgia – he was the Atlanta congressman. And he was one of the first people uh, – one of the first prominent African-Americans uh, to, to come out for Jimmy Carter in 1976. And he gave a very stinging speech. He called Carter's opposition to the plank, in other words, Carter's economic policy, a cowardly and callous retreat from the principles of this party. Ouch. <laughs> and then Ted Kennedy approaches the podium – and he can't talk for twenty minutes because people are giving him a standing ovation. Right. Yes. I mean,
0: you see that, and you see the the coverage of signs in that Madison Square Garden uh, is, is way more than when Carter's. I mean, at least... you know, he continued. Very few of us are that gullible. And four years later,
4: when the Republicans tried that trick again, Franklin Roosevelt asked, can the old
3: guard pass itself off as the New Deal? I think not. So, you know, the speech has two parts, right? And the first is like the best anti-Reagan speech of the entire campaign. Uh, And it's basically taking on Ronald Reagan's um, brilliant co-opting of uh, labor brilliant co-opting of civil rights
4: talking about security for the elderly have nominated a man who said just four years ago that participation in social security should be made
3: voluntary but that was the second part right that was seven and a half minutes into the speech Right. The rest of it, I think, was the most effective anti-Carter speech delivered in the campaign. And, you know, that's saying a lot when you're talking about, you know, Ronald Reagan, who is, you know, no slouch at the podium.
4: And I say again, as I have before, if health insurance is good enough for the president, the vice president, the Congress of the United States, then it's good enough for you and every family in America.
3: And then, after he's done, there's another. Let's see. I have it, a 38 minute ovation. I call it 38 minutes of communal ecstasy. And here's the thing: while this is going on, uh, uh, the Carter people are like, "We got to do something. We got to do something. We got to do something." Here, I'll quote you from a, a UPI report: "When the chance of we want Kennedy finally subsided." Uh, there was agreement uh, Carter would yield on the jobs program in other words he 's not going to have a vote he 's canceling the he can 't be humiliated mm-hmm. on this if Kennedy would yield on price controls so he cuts a deal basically he kind of cuts the cuts the baby in half so they 're basically furiously negotiating backstage during the go during during this ovation um Uh, and and this is why I put it in my book, thus did Jimmy Carter agree to run for re-election on a platform that asked for $12 billion in new spending, which he believed to be a direct cross-purposes with his fundamental economic goal, balancing the budget to fight inflation, which he had argued for as a national imperative in a speech six months earlier that announced $13 billion in new cuts. I mean, he's literally signing off on... Um, a complete reversal uh, running on a platform that's basically the opposite of what he believes because of this 38-minute standing ovation. Still fighting on Wednesday.
0: There's still platform fights even after much is resolved. Mondale makes a speech. He shows the theme that the Carter campaign is going to get into by attacking Reagan. The entire speech is not about the Carter administration or what they've done, but it's about Ronald Reagan and what he might do in office. It's a good speech. He does have a sore throat. It's the next day, not at the convention hall at all, but at PJ Clark's uh, New York City bar in on Third Avenue, which is kind of like a Kennedy haunt, like the Kennedys. When they come to New York, it's a, it's a bar that they go to, and it's a lot of celebrities. We'll go to P.J. Clark. It's one of these uh, places, you know, from 1884. It's one of these places where they're they they were famous for having these unpaid tabs of famous people, <laughs> uh, and uh, so they're they're there, and it's at this meeting where Kirk, some others. They told Senator Kennedy, you know, you got booed when you made your consensus speech. There's a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of people that worked hard for you. You can't just turn around after all this contentiousness and just be happy and smiley with Carter. And it's agreed that they will do everything that they're supposed to do. They will campaign for Carter in 1980. But they're not going to do some kind of plastic show of camaraderie in front of the TV cameras. In the end, Carter gets 2,129 votes. Kennedy gets 1,146 votes. 55 others are scattered, Jerry Brown, other people. Yeah, Jerry Brown's running again. The joke was, the only two things Kennedy and Carter could agree on was they did not like Jerry Brown. Now Carter's last chance would be his acceptance speech.
2: fellow citizens I thank you for the nomination you've offered me and I have learned that the presidency is a place of compassion my own heart is burdened for the troubled Americans the poor and the jobless and the afflicted they've become part of me my thoughts and my prayers for hostages in Iran are as though they were my own sons and daughters.
0: In political terms, the single most important moment of the week on center stage. Hertzberg, Carter's chief writer, with guidance only from the president, Jordan Powell, wrote the speech. Red, white, and blue tie on, Carter's speech goes after Reagan.
2: Some have said it makes no difference who wins this election. They are wrong!
0: Noticeably different in tone. His first speech, very relaxed.
2: Like troops who've been in combat, we've been tempered in the fire.
0: His second presidency seems to age on him.
2: Based on jobs and stable prices for everyone.
0: 1976.
2: Sound judgment and a good common sense and a high moral character.
0: 1980.
2: All the complex global changes of the world since... Of, of the world since World War II have never happened. In their fantasy America, all problems have simple solutions. Simple.
0: Somebody said that it was a speech that read
3: well, but he didn't read it well. I, I don't read well either. I mean, you can read it, you know, but that Ted Kennedy's name, and he gets a, that gets a bigger you know, ovation than him taking the podium. Ted, you're needs, and I need
2: you.
0: was almost begging for Kennedy. It was for a president to be, yeah, it was just this, we need you. <laughs> he finishes, not with a Bob Dylan quote, but with a dire warning.
2: If we succumb to a dream world, then we'll wake up to a nightmare.
0: And the crowd cheers. The band plays. Happy days are here again. Carter's managers had distributed extra badges. In a few minutes, the crowd cheers, Carter grins, the band plays, and then Walter Mondale joins him, hands clasped up in the air. Carter felt Mondale was the best choice he could have made. He says so in this acceptance speech. After Carter's done speaking, a family, and Mondale and everyone are on the podium, seven or eight minutes go by, and the crowd can only go on for so long they start slowing a bit band is playing music but it dies down Bob Strauss as he has done as he had done in 1976 steps up to the podium to stir the crowd by calling up prominent Democrats Speaker Tip O'Neill Mayor Tom Bradley of Los Angeles 15 minutes later the platform is packed with every state official they can think of but everyone has the same question Where's Tad Kennedy?
3: Basically, you know, Kennedy is stuck in traffic. he has been watching it on TV.
0: This isn't entirely Kennedy's fault. He's at the Waldorf Astoria, and it's probably a 15-minute ride to the Madison Square Garden. It's 22 blocks away. Kennedy, when he spoke on Tuesday night, got 30 minutes of demonstration after his speech and couldn't leave the hotel until after Carter finished speaking. See, this is the arrangement between the Carter and Kennedy folks. They didn't want Ted Kennedy leaving the hotel, which would cause the network TV, in the middle of Carter's acceptance speech, his message, his commercial for his campaign, his chance to take it to Reagan and Bush... And now they're going to go to Kennedy leaving the hotel instead of him. So arrangements had been made. He can't leave the hotel until after Carter's speaking. So they sort of created the problem. On the other hand, Kennedy refused to be in any kind of um, holding room. As they get into the car to hear Paul Kirks tell it, Kennedy hears on the radio, he is keeping the president waiting. And Kennedy's angry about it. But it does appear that way because The enthusiasm for Carter's speech is dying down. It's 30 minutes before Senator Ted Kennedy arrives.
3: He finally arrives, and everyone's already on stage.
0: And when he comes out, there's now a new enthusiastic cheer. Senator Ted Kennedy, Bob Strauss calls. The news media is now focused. America is now focused on Kennedy on the podium.
3: One of the anchormen says, it looks a little bit backwards. It's almost as though the man who's lost is waiting on the platform for the man who won. And, and this is this is movement I don't think you can really see on the video. But the crowd is going, we want Teddy. We want Teddy. And Rosalind kind of leans into the microphone and says, we want Jimmy. We want Jimmy. Now
0: what they want is one photographer called it for Time Magazine. The armpit shot. Two arms in the air, hands clasped. Kennedy and Carter onward to victory. They won't get it. Kennedy slowly walks up the stairs into the podium. A handshake. Just a handshake. No clasp. No pat on the arm. No. And it's a very stiff, deliberate, full-arm handshake. He actually, Kennedy, sort of glares up with his eyes, almost like, I want to look at someone else now, and uses his back foot in a way that causes him to release his arm. Yeah, I watch this footage a lot. Kennedy then waves to the delegates exactly what Strauss didn't want has, has come true. Uh, not the winner of the convention, and everyone's on him. Carter is clapping. Looks like a puppy dog, one of the aides says. Kennedy, to hear Theodore White tell it, acts like he's going to the wedding of a chauffeur. Going around, finding everyone else but Carter to shake hands with. Tom Bradley shaking his hand. Um, I believe it's Ruth Messenger, perhaps Carol Bellamy, but I think it's Ruth Messenger in the in the background there. Shakes the hand, uh, pat on the arm, much more much more warmth.
3: There's, I think there's one point in which kind of like he passes by him with his back to Carter. It seems to me. I mean, it, to me, it's quite quite deliberate. Um, Tip O'Neill tries to stand in a way that will force Kennedy
0: to get another shake in with Carter, almost. All but, like, putting his arms together. Um, But that's all he gets, another shake. So Ted Kennedy will end up shaking Carter's hand several times during this small period of time. Kennedy meets Rosalind. Kennedy waves over to Walter Mondale, who gleefully waves back. This is supposed to be the unity moment. Kennedy just crosses Carter while Carter's at the podium. It's just simply obvious what's going on. We know with the agreement that was made among the Kennedy aides at the P.J. Clarks uh, to hear Carter tell it it's all about. Kennedy was drinking. He was hostile that the media got it correct when they found this to be an embarrassing moment. Carter turns and in effect is kind of chasing Kennedy for a few seconds. Gets another frontal exchange with him grabs his hand, and this is kind of at mid-arm level. So it's a handshake design that you can just easily go up in the air and get that moment for the photographers and for the DV camera. I mean, this is not just something psychological. There are literally... There's, a, there's time photographers and other photographers waiting for this to, to click the picture. No dice. Kennedy doesn't want to give him more than a shake. Uh, author John Ward of Camelot's End, which, which is addresses the Carter and Kennedy primary, says that even when he interviewed Carter in 2015... He was still kind of seething about this incident. You can see in Carter's face that this... He knows he has to smile. He knows he has to clap. But you can see on his face that there's just this bitterness as well mixed in on the footage. Carter's people wondered if he had a few pops before the event. John Ward suggested in his book that it depends on what your definition is. You know, Bob Shrum, the political consultant, said, Oh, you know, it was only two Jack and Cokes versus five. Uh, what what does it mean to be, you know, drinking, right? Um, really, we don't know. And the motivation for the night's event seems to be much deeper than anything like that. Uh, John Ward watched the whole footage. I believe you have to go to Vanderbilt University to see it. I wasn't able to do that. But he references that uh, in his interview, Carter told him that... He never shook my hand, and Ward had to remind the former president that actually you shook hands about three or four times. You just never raised arms. (laughs) But after a short period of walking around, Carter sort of turning and clapping and following him, Kennedy descends the staircase, and Carter retains the podium, but not the attention of everyone. Shakes a few more people's hands, and there's just this one quick moment, this one Bill Clinton blip that occurs, where you'd have to you have to uh, go back and forth and rewind and and look at the footage over again to see this less than a second blip of a younger Bill Clinton's face, but he's right there in the place where he should be, shaking a hand of Ted Kennedy as he walks down in the podium, you know, the center of what the attention was at that moment, but. Since uh, Bill Clinton isn't a person that in 1980 we're supposed to care about yet, he just gets the blip. Someone told Bob Strauss it looked like hell. Strauss corrected them, it looked worse than hell.
3: Did it cost him the election? The guy really seems to me had a material effect on Carter losing the election. Seems to me. I mean, they made the Republicans did make, you know, commercials with, you know, Ted Kennedy saying nasty things about Jimmy Carter. I think that he does. uh, He died with that on his conscience.
0: No president has ever won in a recession in the election year. Before they measured recessions, we could say the same about panics or economic disaster in the year of election, or particularly around election time. If that's the best they can do in unity, they've got some work to do, Is Ronald Reagan's quote coming out of watching the convention. Yes, Kennedy does help Carter, in quotes, in the election campaign, but it's all with strings attached. He sort of forces the White House staff to have a fundraiser to help pay his campaign expenses. He's being, as a Kennedy, uh, having some Georgian White House staffers run a fundraiser to pay us. This has caused a lot of bitterness. In fact, no one wanted to raise money when Ham Jordan was given the task of going around the, the White House and collecting checks from the Georgians for Ted Kennedy. He gets none. He has to go to the bank and take a loan out of a thousand dollars for the Kennedy fundraiser. And then finally a few White House staff are seeing what he did say, okay, if Ham did that I'm going to help out. When they have the fundraiser, Kennedy shows up at the White House and you know, he does thank Ham Jordan for what he does. Kennedy also insists that they do a TV commercial where Kennedy is going to endorse Carter, but that they use Kennedy's agency. And it's something like four times the normal cost for an ad that uh, Kennedy's favorite agency charges. The GOP tries and has a success with running ads showing all the bad things that Kennedy said about Carter. The Carter campaign complains to the networks that these are misleading ads. These are false ads. You must take them down because Senator Kennedy has made clear he's endorsing President Carter and Kennedy joins that complaint or more or less, he endorses the denouncement from the Carter people. So there's kind of like, yeah, the convention of 1980, just like 1976 was seen as the ultimate way to run a convention. 1980 seen as cautionary tale. Like, don't do this, particularly for incumbent president.
3: It's pretty typical to be asked when you write a book, what, what's the most surprising thing in your research? And I think the most surprising thing was how much apathy there was among the electorate. And uh, you know, the, the the political cartoon I chose to illustrate that was um, a voter uh, 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 in a voting booth, but his feet are kind of dangling beneath the curtain like he'd hung himself. <laughs> the choices and. Um, I mean, I have uh, those exit poll statistics. Um, Most people were voting against Carter or against Reagan. People were not happy with their choices. Uh, And that's why, of course, John Anderson thought, you know, he could do well. But, you know, he was kind of swept up into the vortex. There was just an enormous amount of alienation from Mm -hmm. politics. And uh, I don't know, maybe the histrionics of the Democratic Convention and maybe even the sort of showbiz aspects of the Republican convention contributed to that. And so you got the, the book, the book is Reagan land. What would
0: be the, what's the best way for for you to, I mean, you know, of course the, the easy way to explain is probably, it's it's the invisible bridge and then up to Reagan's uh, election or.
3: That's right. It's, 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 it's basically takes you from, you know, the day of uh, Ronald Reagan's loss in the 1976 convention to Gerald Ford, to his uh, inauguration on January 20th, 1981 in which uh the plane the, the 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 traffic above uh the airport that would later be named for him was so thick from corporate jets <laughs> that uh the the air traffic controllers that he would later fire uh you know had never seen anything like it
0: Thank you for listening, and I want to thank Rick Perlstein. who was very generous with his time, and he was just a font of information about this time period and others. And go out and get Reaganland. Do it. Okay, if you like this program, please tell someone else about it. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe, particularly on Apple Podcasts because it helps rankings. And uh, give us a review if you feel so inclined. We do have an extra podcast available, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You can go there, see some past episodes, and also sign up for the extra podcast, help out the program. Thanks for listening.